Joshua, the Old Testament book of Joshua. We just started on this series entitled Enter In because that I think is the great theme of the book. It's about the conquest of the promised land that was given to the Hebrews. They had been given the promise under Abraham, but they had to wait a long time before they embraced it, about 500 years. A detour in Egypt for 400 years, and then due to their own unbelief, wandering in the wilderness for another 40. But now they are on the eastern side of the Jordan River, about seven miles from the Jordan River, and they are ready to enter into that wonderful promised land. All the families of the Exodus are gone, except for but a few, Joshua and Caleb. Moses is buried in an unknown Moabian grave. Joshua has been selected by God and commissioned to lead this young nation into their inheritance. It's also called the land of rest. It is the promised land. It is a new land. They are about ready to possess their possessions. God promises his presence as they go. As I was with Moses, he said to Joshua, so I will be with you. And he promises his power. No one will be able to stand against you. They need only be strong and of good courage, strong in faith that God's word is true, and courageous then to obey what they know to be true. Strength and courage go together. But still they need a strategy. That is, they need to do some reconnaissance. They need some military intelligence before they go into battle. And over and over again, the scripture tells us this is the wise move. I simply want to remind you that there is no discrepancy between divine promise and human planning. All of our plans need to be given to God. Man plans his way, but God directs his steps. And God has a wonderful plan for your life, and he has mapped out a path for you to follow but you must do some work in finding it and diligence in embracing it. So when we come to chapter 2 in the book of Joshua, we read these words in verse 1. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, their camp, seven miles east of the Jordan, saying, Go view the land and especially Jericho, which was seven miles west of the Jordan. This particular city is one of the oldest cities in the world, Jericho. One of the oldest in human history. It's walled, strongly walled, with a double wall, at least 15 feet between each wall, so say the archaeologists. It covered about eight or nine acres of land, and yet the inhabitants on the inside, the Amorites or Canaanites, as we might call them, indeed were afraid of Israel. The menacing presence of the army of Israel was just to the east of them, and they were awaiting the inevitable conflict. And there was tremendous fear 
on the inside. Now this, to me, seems so ironic. If you go back 40 years, Israel did not want to enter into the land because there were giants in the land, and they were afraid. All the while not knowing that the people in the land were afraid of them. You and I cower before the giants of this world when God has promised no one will stand before you. And when we embrace his word and walk in faith, there is victory. This was a dangerous mission. By the way, it's interesting that Joshua sends two spies. 40 years ago, he was one of the 12, Joshua was, that went to investigate the promised land. Remember that? And they came back, and uh, 10 had a bad report. Only two had a good report. Apparently, Joshua said, why send 12 when 10 are going to let you down? I'll just send two. So he sent the best he could find. But it was still extremely dangerous. The River Jordan, as we're going to see in the next two chapters, was at flood stage, which makes it difficult to cross. My guess, best guess is they traveled north from their camp and found shallow water to cross over in the Jordan, somewhere in the north, and then came down toward the city of Jericho and actually from the west side where you have some mountains of protection because this walled city is situated in a large valley and you can easily see anyone coming. I bet the, the, the spies disguised themselves as Canaanites. A little deception is okay in war, isn't it? And they, they came to the west side, as Joshua had told them to go. Now, on the western wall was a bordello where travelers frequently visited. It was the house of a woman who was a harlot. We read in verse 1, So they went and came into the house of a harlot, whose name was Rahab, and lodged with a woman. <laughs> Now, if you were reading this for the very first time, would you not think, whoa, what are you guys doing? Find a Panera. You know, do something that's a little more acceptable. But there appears to be absolutely no immoral motivation. This is the best place to get lost. There's no place like a harlot's house for the coming and going of people. Strangers are coming in all of the time. And even more acceptable in that day than in our own. And so maybe it was the only place, but maybe it was the best place. And they went in to her house, hoping not to be detected. Hoping that somehow they could be lost in the crowd. Find out a little bit of information about this city. Find out what their, what their attitude was toward the Israelites. Get enough information, uh, perhaps by the, the best way of attack. All of that was what they were thinking about. But instead they were detected. The harlot knew who they were. And the king had his own eyes out there, people who saw them come in. So we read in verse 1, verse 2, it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho, these were, 
the land was not uh, one big empire. It was small city-states, and there was a king over this particular city. He sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who've come to you, who've entered into your house, for they've come to search out the land, their enemies, their traitors. By the way, it's very possible that Rahab had a very high reputation in the city of Jericho. You have to understand that pagans and their rituals were very sensual. She might have even been a high priestess in her land with some degree of influence. But the king gave the ultimatum. The king was on their case. Rahab knew who they were. They were the enemy of God's people. These guys are dead meat. It wouldn't be long before they were killed and executed. But then what happens next was truly unexpected. We read it from a distance without any care, but put yourself in their place. And then to hear these words, verse 4, but the woman who knew, they were, who, knew who they were actually sided with them. She hid them and then said to the men who came, I didn't know who they were or where they were from. That was a lie. Verse 5. It came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark, the men went out. That was a lie. And I don't know where the men went. That's a lie. Pursue them quickly, for perhaps you'll overtake them. But she had actually brought them up to the roof of her house, hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid there in order to dry on the roof, and so the Jericho men pursued them on the road all the way to the fords of Jordan. And as soon as those men who were pursuing them were gone, they shut and bolted the city gates. And I think these guys are thinking, we're still not out of the woods. What if she turns on us? Which is, what if this is simply a plot? The response was shocking. Now we're going to jump out of the story just for a moment and jump all the way to the New Testament because Rahab is mentioned three times in the New Testament and it gives tre tremendous insight into her life and her deeds. The first verse I want to mention to you is Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 31. We'll have it on the screen for you, but perhaps you remember that this is the chapter that speaks of, about the heroes of the faith, right? And here is a prostitute among the heroes of the faith. You say, Pastor, stop using that word. <laughs> no. Because it's biblical. And the three times she's mentioned in the New Testament, twice she's called a prostitute. How would you like to be named by your worst sin forever? A Downing Thomas? <laughs> How does it feel? Oh yeah, there have been many people who've tried to paint the picture that she was just an innkeeper and there was nothing wrong with her immorally, but that's not what the Bible says. The Greek word behind this word in Hebrews 11 is the Greek word porne, where we get the English pornea. She was involved in the sex industry. Why does God do that? Because he's a God of truth. He paints the picture just as it is and allows us to see something amazingly shocking. 
that this woman that appeared to be so low from many human eyes and certainly in the 21st century from a Western perspective is going to be the recipient of God's great grace. And when he saves, saves those on the bottom, he can save anyone else. By the way, <laughs> it's probably wrong for you to think that she is below you. Oh, I would never do something like that. Oh, you wouldn't, you sinner? We have all committed spiritual prostitution by leaving the God we love. The Bible makes that plain. But what I want to see from Hebrews 11 is this, that she was a woman of amazing faith. And she left the trade, yes, to be sure. But her life is going to teach us what genuine faith is all about. And the first thing I want you to know is this, genuine faith does something. It's animated. It's active. It responds. And Rahab's first work of faith was to lie. Now, uh, this is not really the portion of Scripture or the time for us to get into all the ethics about the debate of lying. God says lying is wrong. It goes against his character. And yet, if you don't see in wartime the fact that Armies lie all the time with their deception. And exactly this is what Joshua is going to do when they fight against Ai. They're going to deceive the enemy. If you say you can never use deception and never lie, then what about those people hiding the Jews in World War II when the Nazis came knocking on the door and said, are you hiding any Jews? I cannot tell a lie. Absolutely, upstairs, right behind the bed. When to lie is to cause the death of the innocent? In wartime, the rules do flex and change. Sometimes way too much. But she's really a freedom fighter. She's fighting for the truth. And also she's a young believer. We need to be patient with new believers. It is amazing to me how we expect new believers to know everything we know and act like we act when we've been walking with Christ for so many years. There was a testimony meeting at a church one night with an open mic, much like we do around Thanksgiving time. Perhaps we should do it more. But the mic was open, and they said, anyone that wants to praise God can. And this man got up who had just came to Christ and praised God in a wonderful testimony that lasts five minutes, and he swore Five or six times. <laughs> he didn't know any better. He's a new convert. And while you shouldn't say to him, boy, that was a good testimony, say those same words the next time you speak, you have to understand that we need to be patient with new believers. So let's not get hung up on the lying part of it. And God doesn't say that he approves of the lying part of it. But what he does say is he approves of the faith behind it. God can use bad acts to accomplish good things. And if your faith is genuine, it's going to do something. Why? Because faith without works is what? 
James chapter 2, you don't need to turn there. Julie read it a moment ago, but three times in that one chapter we're told faith without works is dead. Faith gives evidence that it is alive. One illustration is Abraham, who is considered, considered righteous because he believed in God. But the demonstration of his faith was that he was willing to offer up his son Isaac on the altar. Which, by the way, happened many years later. And the second illustration that James gives is Rahab. The prostitute, he says. In the same way, just like Abraham, she believed, really believed, and because she really believed, her deeds were open to all. She gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. That was evidence of real faith. If you've never heard this before, I hope you learn it. And understand it. It's this wonderful statement. We are saved by faith alone. But the faith that saves is not alone. Confusing? Let me describe it like this. We are saved only by faith in God. Nothing we do merits or earns our salvation. But if our faith is real, it will demonstrate reality by doing something. So the faith that saves is not alone. Three times James said, faith without works is dead. And yet it's only faith that brings us into a saving relationship with God. So we can say we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that truly saves is never alone. So what about your faith? Can others see in what you do a demonstration that you really believe in God? Both Abraham and Rahab were willing to risk everything because they believed in God's reality and God's promises. If Rahab were found out, she would be executed as a traitor. Another Benedict Arnold and Edward Snowden. Someone who had betrayed their country. She was turning against her people. As she put her faith in God and hid the spies. Real faith is willing to risk all for Christ. That's what causes me great fear. That in the church of Jesus Christ, and I'm talking about at large, made up of assemblies like South, that in the Bible-believing church of Christ, there are many who say they believe intellectually, but their faith has never moved them. Martin Lloyd-Jones was right when he said that faith takes over the whole personality. It instructs your mind so you think differently. It stirs your emotions so you feel differently. And it causes your will to be yielded to the will of God. Real faith changes your whole personality. When you're born again, you're a new creature. Think differently, feel differently, act differently. It's not that we always act as Christians, but the fact is, if there's real faith, we will act as Christians. And if people look at your life and see no evidence of a Christ follower, I say to you, why do you believe you're born again? Because real faith 
does something. Secondly, genuine faith, real faith, believes something. There is a faith to be articulated. Now, young believers don't know everything there is to know about the doctrine of Scripture. That's to be understood. But they know something because they have to believe something. It probably wasn't too hard to make this woman realize that she was a sinner. But we read in the Scriptures, verse 8, now, before they lay down, after the Police came from the king and were sent on their way. And before the spies went to bed, she went up to the roof, verse 9, and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. Wow, what faith. And that the terror of you has fallen upon us and all the inhabitants of, of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. When did that happen? Forty years before this. Maybe even before she was born. But everyone was talking about what God had done. How he dried up the water of the Red Sea before you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan on the east side, Sihon and Og. And you utterly destroyed them. We've heard it. Verse 11. And our hearts have melted, and there's no courage in the city. No one can stand up against you. They were hoping that the walls of their great city could never be taken. And that was their only hope. But then she said this, verse 11. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. She believed something. She believed in one God, not many gods like the rest of her people who were polytheistic. She gave herself to Jehovah and Jehovah alone. For the Lord your God, He is God. She believed in a personal God, your God, the God of the Israelites. And thirdly, she believed in a powerful God who was sovereign above everything. He is God in heaven above, and he is God on earth beneath. That's all there was in the thinking of that day, the here, the down here, and the up there. This age and the age to come. And this is basically a song of faith. This sounds a little bit like what Ruth said. When she was, she, a Moabite who did live on the east side of the Jordan, was unwilling to walk away. And she said, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. This is a declaration of faith. Some have said she didn't get saved at this point. She got saved later. The Bible doesn't tell us. But this is a wonderful statement of faith. And this is what was behind her deeds of concealment. She was convinced that God was God. She was convinced that the land was his. He was giving it to the Israelites. And therefore, she protected God's people. I tell you, you never can tell where faith will be found. Isn't that great? God's grace is so great. It saved you. I mean, was that not somewhat surprising that God saved you? 
Oh, you expected it, did you? You deserved it. I came from a good home, an honest home, none of this prostitution stuff. <laughs> oh, sometimes we have such a high view of ourselves, and we don't realize that sin is sin. And in God's eyes, it's horrible. All sinners are under his wrath, including Rahab. But she believed. One of my best friends, who I find to be one of the most effective ministers today, when he tells his story, talks about his times living in the drug world in Ohio and the gangs on the streets and all that they did and the time he spent in federal penitentiary until he came to faith in Christ. And he's now one of the most powerful witnesses I've ever heard. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary Mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Grace, grace. What about Matthew? He was a tax collector, hated by everyone. And Zacchaeus. By the way, he got saved in Jericho. Zacchaeus, another tax collector and a convert. God specializes in touching lives by his grace, healing the broken, lifting up the downtrodden. And yes, Rahab's faith wasn't perfect, but it was real. Make that distinction. None of us have complete faith. Hopefully we're growing and maturing in our faith, but all of us have imperfect faith. And when you first come to Christ, it is so small, like that grain of a mustard seed. But if it's real, it's saving faith. She might have been motivated by fear, knowing the Israelites were going to conquer the land. She might have been disillusioned by her trade, hoping to get out of that life and find something else. But whatever fueled her faith, she believed that God was God, and she wanted to be on his side. To be transferred from the Amorite kingdom to the Israeli kingdom. To go from an earthly citizen, a child of wrath, to a citizen of heaven. A child of God. That's what happened. And it happened by faith. Well the scriptures tell us that uh, the men said to her, verse 14, our life for yours. If you don't tell anyone about our business, when it comes that the Lord gives us the city, we'll deal kindly with you. A great Hebrew word has said, the loving kindness of God. We will deal kindly with you. And then she let them down by a rope through the window. And the men said to her, we'll be free from this oath if you don't follow our agreement, our plan. Unless, verse 18, that when we come in the land, you tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window through which you let us down. The scarlet cord. Now, some people think that she let them down with a scarlet cord. Uh, I I don't think she did. I think the, the two Hebrew words seem to indicate that the one was a very heavy rope that was twisted with strands of three and the scarlet cord was more like a ribbon. Apparently the flax that she'd been drying up on the top of the roof uh, was because she also was involved in the linen trade and maybe even dyeing the linen, linen for clothing. But here was a red scarlet cord. The church fathers 
have always seen this as a symbol of the blood of Jesus Christ. But what we do know is this. The spies would have noticed the imagery quite clearly. When they left Egypt, the Passover lamb was killed and the blood was put on the door and everyone in the house was safe because of the blood. And now the spies say, you wrap this scarlet cord around the window and when we see the cord, everyone in the house is safe. It's kind of like God saying judgment is coming to the world, Noah, and everyone in the ark will be protected. It is very much like God's wrath is coming, but all who are in Christ are safe. Behind the blood coming out of Egypt, there was safety coming into the land. Those who were behind the scarlet cord were safe. I'm not sure Rahab understood the symbolism, but I think the spies did. And you and I know that there is a scarlet cord running through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation speaking about God giving his life so that we might be redeemed. The final thing I want to bring to your attention is simply this. She had genuine faith that did something. She had genuine faith that believed something. And she had genuine faith that continued. It continued on for something. Her life was radically changed. Now when we jump to chapter 6, and we'll do that in a few weeks, we'll notice that she and all who were brought into her house, her family members, those who came in, were physically delivered from destruction. And even today, the spade of the archaeologist will show the ruins of Jericho burnt and the walls tumbled down except one section between two walls apparently was still standing. She was delivered physically, but she was also delivered spiritually. And I love this. This is in chapter 6, verse 25. Joshua, when he came and destroyed Jericho, the scripture says, spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the spies. And she lives among the Israelites until this day. That's chapter 6, verse 25. By the way, there are 11 indications throughout the book of Joshua that says something like that. These stones are still here until this day. The city is still burned down until this day, which shows that the writing was not that long after the events. Rahab is living with the people of God. And she gets married and has a family and joins the nation. Isn't that something? God's judgment was upon all of these people, but she believed. And she became a member of the family of God. Now the third time that she's mentioned in the New Testament, we just have to see this. This is Matthew chapter 1, because it talks about Rahab's family. In Matthew chapter 1, if you know your Bible, you might realize that this is a genealogy of Jesus. This is talking about the birth of Christ and that how he truly comes from the royal line of Judah. And so we read in Matthew chapter 1, verse 4, that Nashon was the father of Salmon. And Salmon begat Boaz, who married Ruth, or who married Rahab. Isn't that amazing? 
And Boaz is the one who marries Ruth. And then you follow the line done. They have a son, Obed, who has a son, Jesse, who has a son, David, who happens to be the king. And we follow along in David's line as we follow in Matthew 1 and we come to Jesus Christ. By the way, Nashon, Nashon was a prince in Israel. If you were to go back to Numbers chapter 7, there was a special offering that was being taken. One representative came from every tribe, and the representative from the tribe of Judah was a man named Nashon. He was a prince, which means his son Salmon was a prince. Some people think he's one of the two spies. We don't know. But we do know this, Rahab married a prince and was put into the line of Jesus. Now Jesus has no sin, but everyone in his line does. Even Mary, who said, I need a Savior. I praise God, my Lord, and my Savior. A Judean prince marries an Amorite prostitute. The headlines in the Hebrew news one morning. Shocker. I don't think that should be, you say. I think it's the most fitting thing in the world. Because where sin abounds, what's the rest of it? Grace does much more abound. Say it with me. Grace does much more abound. You know where sin abounds? In your heart and in my heart. We are sinners before God and need to be saved. Well, I'm not as bad as, I'm not as bad as, don't play that game. It doesn't make any difference. I remember the story of two men, three men actually, who came to a great chasm. It was, oh, I'm just guessing now, 30 feet across. And they decided the only way was to run and take a jump. And the first guy took a running jump, but was not very athletic, went 10 feet and down to the bottom. This is not a true story, by the way. The second man decided to jump, and he was a little more athletic and gave it everything he had and went and went, jumped, and he went about 20 feet and ended up in the bottom of the chasm. The third guy was the world record holder for the running long jump, which was, at that time, 29 feet. And so he goes running, and he almost makes it. His fingernails touch the edge, but he can't get a grip, and he falls to the bottom. Now, who's better off? Well, the guy who jumped 29 feet, right? No. The wages of sin is death. My friend, no matter how much better you think you are than someone else, you're a sinner who needs saving. And the fact that God saved Rahab ought to give you tremendous hope that God can save me. Because where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Let's pray. Lord, I am so thankful that when I read Hebrews 11, it's a story of rebels and renegades, the rebellious great sinners who were saved by the mighty grace of God. Pagans like Abraham, Egyptians like Moses, and a harlot like Rahab. And Lord, there may be someone here today who thinks that they're beyond saving, that their sin is too great, they have done too much. 
you would never come to them, but let them see today that your grace is greater than all our sin. And one simple look to Christ of genuine faith, no matter, no matter how imperfect it is, brings salvation forevermore. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Two oh one. Let's stand together. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, Him two oh one. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilled. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Amen. Before you go, just wanted to give you a reminder that children's ministry is still in need of some teachers and helpers. So if you would, check out the table out there. Wanted to extend an invitation to you to the Women's Ministry India Project Night. So that invitation is, should be in your bulletin and you can look through that. And again, we had a special announcement today about Samaritas, and they have a table out there. I would love for you to go and look at that. Please, if there's something that was said today that may have pricked your heart, convicted you about something, we have prayer partners at the front at the close of this service. They'd love to pray with you. So let's go to the Lord in prayer before we go. Father, we thank you again for this day. We're grateful for your grace. We are forever grateful for that fact that it exists and that you've provided it. We give you all the praise and leave here in your peace. In Jesus' name, amen.